Genesis chapter 2, we begin in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Could I pause there just long enough to point out an obvious truth that when it comes to Sabbath observance, this is a creation ordinance. This is not simply uh, a command that was given from Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given. We find the example for this very thing being set by God himself. Why would God rest on the seventh day? Was he tired after six days of creation? And we know the answer to that is obviously not. What he's doing here is setting an example uh, for believers to follow. Verse 3, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And I should perhaps pause there long enough to point out that this is what distinguishes us from the rest of animal creation. This animating spirit, God breathing into us the breath of life, as well as God creating us in his own image. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump down now, if you would, to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden, to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. In verse 9, you find mention made of trees. Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then he specifies two of these trees, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So certainly an emphasis in verse 9 on trees. God made every tree. Every tree was good for food. And there are two trees that are singled out in particular, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
we come to verses 15 through 17, and we find again mention made of a tree, this time the focus uh, on the one in particular. Verse 15, again, the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. I have uh, highlighted those verses, verses 15 through 17, and then I put a little asterisk next to it and made a note to myself on the bottom which simply says this, covenant of works. Here is the passage that sets forth for us the covenant of works. Okay? It is true, you don't find the word covenant there, but you do find every particular that is involved in a covenant, which uh, involves two parties, um, a reward for obedience, a punishment for disobedience. So the covenant of works uh, clearly revealed there. Now I have had the privilege over the last few weeks, and this privilege is going to extend throughout the rest of this month and halfway into March. It is my privilege to be teaching in our seminary the course on anthropology. As the time drew near for this class to begin, I was in search of every excuse I could find to try to get out of it. There have been others that have taught it, but uh, they're not available on this occasion. So, like it or not, the job was put to me. Fortunately for me, uh, Dr. Allison left behind um, his recorded lectures as well as extensive, I say extensive, even manuscripted uh, lecture notes that I have um, been utilizing and have made them pretty much the basis for the lectures that I give. I read his notes extensively in the class, although I do have the liberty to pause whenever I want to, to um, add my own input into what we're reading or try to generate discussion. I, I really am a big believer of that in a seminary classroom. You know, I have uh, said to the students at the beginning of this time, uh, what's the difference between a seminary lecture and a theology book? And the answer is the book in all likelihood is better. <laughs> but uh, you can get around that, though, if you can function as a teacher and not merely be an output device for dispensing information, but if you can get students to think and you can get some discussions uh, going, then I think the class is much more beneficial in training them for down the road. And so I assure them that a part of their grade is contingent on their participation in class. So if you are given to keeping silent, uh, you better work on that. That's not going to fly uh, in this course. But over the, the course of these few weeks, uh, among the things I have tried to do is also 
uh, provide for them what I think can be valuable resources for them down the road, especially in the avenue of anthropology. I should perhaps clarify here that anthropology is the study of man. That's what that branch of theology encompasses. Anthropos, the Greek word for man. The ology is kind of the Greek word for study or reasoning. Uh, The word logos, reasoning. So the study of man. And it's interesting, a study in anthropology is very timely these days because the doctrine of man is under attack today, perhaps unlike any other time in history, when the very personhood of man is being challenged and, um, and misconstrued uh, to the point where uh, you are free to choose your own gender should you have an inclination so to do. And you look at that, and at first you want to laugh. Uh, But then when you read instances of people being fired from their jobs for refusing to go along with the pretend world, well, then it becomes a lot more serious. But like I say, in the course of these studies, I I try to um, give to the students uh, other reference materials, Thomas Boston, Fourfold State of Man, perhaps the classic work on anthropology. Um, And on a couple of occasions, I've done this, um, well, at least once, I'll probably do it again before I'm done, is I will find other sources that I find to be valuable outside of the manuscripted lecture notes that uh, Dr. Allison leaves behind, and I will take the time to read those notes, and I came across what I think is a very valuable little chapter in Arthur Pink's commentary on Genesis that is entitled, Two Trees, Two Trees. So I'll be borrowing extensively from A.W. Pink today. In fact, we might not even want to upload this one um, for fear that maybe I haven't given Arthur Pink enough credit, or maybe we can upload it because I'll give him plenty of credit along the way. This is largely his observation, and he's making reference to two trees. The one of them is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, The other one might not be what you suspect. It's not the tree of life. It is rather the tree of the cross of Jesus Christ. Pink notes, and now I'm reading him here. In studying the typical teaching of the Old Testament scriptures, we learn from them sometimes by way of contrast and sometimes by way of comparison. A striking illustration of this double fact is found in the second chapter of Genesis. In the ninth verse we read of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 30 we read, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. And again, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. 
Now, a thoughtful reader of God's word will naturally inquire, why should the cross of our blessed Lord be spoken of as a tree? Surely there must be some deeper meaning than that which appears on the surface. Was it not intended by the Holy Spirit that we should refer back to Genesis 2 and verse 9 and compare and contrast these two trees? We believe so, and a quiet meditation thereon reveals some remarkable points, both of comparison and contrast, between the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree on which our Lord was crucified. Let us consider some of the points of contrast first. So we're focusing now on these two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of the cross. And we know that the cross of Christ is referred to in numerous occasions as a tree. Number one, here's the contrast, the first contrast. The first tree was planted by God. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.9 This tree then was planted not by Adam, but by Adam's maker, God. But the second tree, the tree to which our Lord was nailed, arguably you could say was planted by man. And they crucified him. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-five. They crucified him. Is the brief but terrible record. It was human hands which devised, provided, and erected that cruel tree on the hill of Calvary. In marked contrast from the first tree, it was the hands of the creature and not the creator which planted the second tree. And at this point, I paused and I reminded the students, be that as it may, we know that even this second tree was, in a sense, planted by God, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It is true this was done by men, and Peter does uh, hold them responsible for it when he charges them with that crime. But, We can't ever lose sight of the fact that uh, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't just a um, circumstance of history whereby people that were jealous of Christ and felt threatened by his growing popularity uh, so manipulated the government as to have him crucified. So that's the first contrast pertaining to the planting of, of each tree, one by God, one by man, in a sense. Number two, the first tree was pleasant to the eyes. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. You know, if you will indulge me for a moment or two as I I'm thinking now in terms of anthropology. This is indeed a great mystery. And theologians are largely in agreement over this. Something took place internally in the the life of Eve 
before the action was performed. Okay, I said a moment ago that the law of God pertains not merely to the deed, but to the thoughts, to the intents, to the motives, uh, to the words. And, and, and so uh, the sin committed first in the Garden of Eden was committed the same way internally before it was committed externally. And that is indeed a great mystery. Something inside Adam and Eve just shattered like a very fine crystal vase. Something was just smashed and shattered so that they had an inclination now to act independently of God and to act at the devil's instigation. But anyway, the point here that Pink is making pertains to the first tree being pleasant to the eyes. Exactly in what this pleasantness consisted, we do not know. But the divine record seems to indicate that this tree was an an object of beauty and delight. What a contrast from the second tree. Here everything was hideous and repellent. The suffering Savior, the vulgar crowd, the taunting priests, the two thieves, the flowing blood, the three hours of darkness. Nothing was there to please the outward eye. The first tree was pleasant to the eyes, but concerning the one on the second tree, it is written, they saw in him no beauty that they should desire him. So a real contrast in the appearance of these two trees. Although interestingly enough, as Repugnant as the sight is of Calvary's cross, yet to those who have gained a saving interest in Christ, who know the purpose behind the cross, we can actually find in a repugnant sight a beautiful sight nonetheless. When we understand that this was by divine design and that Christ died in our place. Number three, the third contrast. God forbade man to eat of the first tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, Genesis 2.17. A divine prohibition was placed upon the fruit of this tree. But again, how different from the second tree. How startling the contrast. There is no restriction here. In this case, man is freely invited to draw near and eat of the fruit of this tree, that tree being the cross of Christ. The sinner is hidden to taste and see that the Lord is good. All things are ready. Come, the scripture says. The position is exactly reversed. Just as man was commanded not to eat of the fruit of the first tree, he is now commanded to eat of the second tree. And you remember the words of Christ and how they were mistaken in their meaning? In John chapter 6, where he refers to his flesh as meat indeed and to his blood as drink indeed, a reference to the cross, where we do um, eat and drink spiritually speaking. Not in a literal sense, as uh, Roman Catholics suggest in their dogma, but in a spiritual sense. Number four, still thinking on contrasts here. Because God forbade man to eat of the first tree, Satan used every artifice to get man to eat of it. 
Contrarywise, because God now invites men to eat of the second tree, Satan uses all his powers to prevent men eating of it. Is not this another designed contrast marked out for us by the Holy Spirit? Humanly speaking, it was solely due to the cunning and malice of the great enemy of God and man that our first parents ate the forbidden fruit. And can we not also say that it is now primarily due to the subtle devices of the old serpent, the devil, that sinners are kept from eating the fruit of the second tree? The devil does not want you to partake of the tree of Calvary's cross. He knows what that can do to a sinner. It can convert him. It can uh, cause the devil to lose his grip on him. So, interesting contrast there. Number five, I have two more here by way of contrast. The eating of the first tree brought sin and death. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, Genesis 2.17. It was through eating of the fruit of this tree that the curse descended upon our race with all its attendant miseries. By eating the second tree comes life and salvation. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Christ speaking now, this verse that I just referenced a moment ago, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, Ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. John six fifty three and 54. Is there not in these words of our Lord a latent reference to the history of man's fall and the designed contrast from the first tree? Just as by the act of eating man lost his spiritual life, so by a spiritual act of eating, man now obtains spiritual and eternal life. And number six, Adam, the thief, through eating of the first tree, was turned out of paradise, while the repentant thief, through eating of the second tree, entered paradise. We doubt not that, once again, there is a designed antithesis in these two things. A thief is connected with both trees. For in eating of the forbidden fruit, our first parents committed an act of theft. It is not then something more than a coincidence that we find a thief, yea, two thieves, connected with the second tree also. And when we note the widely different experiences of the two thieves, the point is even more striking. As we have said, one was cast out of paradise, the garden. The other was admitted into paradise. And to say the least, it is remarkable that our Lord should employ the word paradise in this connection, the only time he ever used that word. So we have those contrasts between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of Calvary's cross. Pretty marked contrasts, aren't they? And not hard to uh, decipher. Pink goes on. Now briefly, let us consider some points of resemblance. One, both trees were planted in a garden. The first in the garden of Eden, the second in a garden which is unnamed. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. 
John 19, 41. Are we not told this for one reason, in order that we should connect the two trees? Is it not a striking point of analogy that both the first Adam and the last Adam died in a garden? Two, in connection with both trees, we find the words, in the midst. The tree of life also, in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2, 9. The word and, connecting the two trees together and intimating their juxtaposition in the midst of the garden. In like manner, we also read concerning our Savior, they crucified him and two others with him on either side, and Jesus in the midst. Three, both are trees of the knowledge of good and evil. Where in all the world, or in all the scriptures, do we learn the knowledge of good and evil as we do at the second tree, the cross? There we see goodness incarnate. There we behold holiness of God displayed as nowhere else. There we discover the unfathomable love and matchless grace of deity unveiled as never before or since. But there too we also see evil in all its native hideousness. There we witness the consummation and climax of the creature's wickedness. There we behold as nowhere else the vileness, the heinousness, the awfulness of sin as it appears in the sight of the thrice holy God. Yes, there is a designed resemblance as well as a contrast between the two trees. The cross also is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And four, finally there is another tree besides the one that was planted in Eden, of which Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 is true. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Ah, that second tree is surely good for food too. The cross of Christ and all that it stands for is the very meat and marrow of the believer's life. It is good as food for the soul and how pleasant it is to the eyes of faith. There we see all our sins blotted out. There we see our old man crucified. There we see the ground upon which a holy God can meet a guilty sinner. There we see the finished work of our adorable Redeemer. Truly it is pleasant to the eyes. And is not this second tree also a tree to be desired to make one wise? Yes, the preaching of the cross is not only the power of God, but the wisdom of God as well. The knowledge of this second tree makes the sinner wise unto salvation. In closing this little meditation, we would call attention to one or two other scriptures in which a tree figures prominently. First, from Genesis 3.17, we learn that the tree is linked directly with the curse. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. 
In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. In the light of this, how significant are the following passages. In Genesis 40, we have recorded the dreams of the two men who were in prison with Joseph. When interpreting the baker's dream, Joseph said, Within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head from off thee, and thou shalt hang on a tree. And again in Joshua 8.29, we're told, And the king of Ai was hanged on a tree until eventide. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree. Once more in Esther 2 and verse 23, we read, And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out, therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. What striking illustrations are these of what we find in Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. When he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray thee, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Genesis 18, 1 to 4. How suggestive are the last words of this quotation. Why should we be told that Abraham invited his three visitors to rest under the tree unless there is some typical meaning to his words? The tree, as we have seen, speaks of the cross of Christ, and it is there that rest is to be found. An additional point is brought out in the eighth verse of Genesis 18, And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. Eating is the symbol of communion. And it was under the tree these three men ate. So it is the cross of Christ, which is the basis, the ground of our fellowship with God. How striking to the order here first rest under the tree, and then eating or fellowship under the tree. Finally, how meaningful is Exodus 15, verses 23 to 25, when Israel, at the commencement of their wilderness journey, reached Merah, they could not drink of the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. And Moses cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Comment is almost needless, Pink writes. The type is so apparent. Here again, the tree typifies the cross of Christ and the Christ of the cross. It was our blessed Lord who by going down into the place of death sweetened the bitter waters for us. Furthermore, it is only as the believer applies practically the principle of the cross to his daily life that the maras of our wilderness experiences are transmuted into waters that are made sweet. 
to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings and to be made conformable unto his death is the highest Christian privilege. How remarkable is the order, the progressive order of these passages. First, the tree is seen as the place of the curse. Second, the tree is seen as the place where rest is found. Third, the tree is seen as the ground of communion. Fourth, the tree is seen as the principle of action to the daily life of the believer. My, what comparisons and contrasts and lessons we can draw from that tree in the Garden of Eden with the tree of Calvary's cross. Let's close then in prayer, shall we? Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for the way the scriptures point us to the cross of Christ. We know that our Savior came in the fullness of time. We know that exactly the right time in the history of civilization He was nailed to that tree to secure salvation for us. O Lord, may we rest beneath this tree. May we enjoy communion with Thee based on the merit of Christ's atoning death. And we pray, O Lord, that Thou wilt help us to apply the tree of Christ's cross even to those bitter providences that we encounter in life, for we know that the cross of Christ can certainly sweeten them. So, Lord, keep us near the cross, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.